Amen. The resurrection account in the Gospel of, of Luke is much different than any of the other Gospels. It's not contradictory, it's just different because Luke deliberately takes much longer to give us a glimpse of the risen Christ than any of the other Gospel writers. In fact, there's no direct encounter mentioned with Jesus in our whole section. The effect that this creates in Luke is similar to a breaking news story where it's obvious that there's something you know, really big that has just happened, but the event is still unfolding with additional details becoming clear as, as different witnesses are interviewed throughout the day and, and new facts emerge. Luke's breaking news story is, of course, the empty tomb of Jesus, and it's not pastoral exaggeration to say that that is the most important event in all of human history. Now, before we dive into our passage, let me give you the big idea up front. The empty tomb is a shocking reality that demands a response. The empty tomb is a shocking reality, and its, its significance demands a response. What the Bible has to teach us about Jesus' resurrection is not unclear. Instead, it's the rock-solid foundation of the Christian faith. And if you try to remain neutral on the resurrection, you by default reject Christ and Christianity. In many ways, all of Scripture, the whole Bible, it's driving you to answer the question, do you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? And do you believe that he rose from the dead? And submit your life to the implications of that. To work through our text, we have two main points. We're going to look at the shock of the empty tomb and the significance of the empty tomb. If you're taking notes, I'll give you those again. It's the shock of and the significance of the empty tomb. For our first main point, listen again to verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. Verse 1, it introduces us to the scene of the breaking news, which is the tomb of Jesus. Luke 23 describes that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body off of the cross, and then he buried him in his own expensive tomb, which had been cut out of rock and never used before. Verse 1 also introduces us to the first witnesses of the breaking news. The they, in verse 1, refers to Jesus' faithful female disciples mentioned at the end of chapter 23. These remarkable women, they never denied or abandoned Jesus, and they were there at the cross watching as their Lord was, was tortured and killed. They even bravely followed Jesus' body all the way to his grave, and they saw exactly where he was laid. But since it was almost the Sabbath day, they had to go home and wait until the first day of the week to return with spices to anoint Jesus' body. When they did return, though, they did not find what they expected. Verses 2 through 3, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. This is Luke's breaking news. Jesus' tomb is empty. Jesus' body is missing. Since we know the end of the story, it's, it's easy for us to miss how shocking all this would have been to these women. Jesus had walked on water, given sight to the blind, and even raised multiple people back from the grave. The last thing his followers expected was for him to die. It's always devastating when a loved one dies unexpectedly. 
Many of you have probably heard that on Good Friday, there was a funeral for a a 16-year-old girl named Ashley in Carlisle. And she was killed in a car accident just on the way to school. That that is a tragedy. That that is every parent's worst nightmare. To hug, hug your kid, they go out the door, and you never see them again alive. You never get to hug them again. Jesus, his disciples, they felt that heartbreak. They felt that grief upon his death. And on top of their grief, there must have been a crushing despair as well because they had devoted their entire lives to Jesus. They believed that he was the divine king that that had been promised throughout the whole Old Testament who was going to establish an eternal kingdom. And so these women's entire paradigm about life seemed shattered and destroyed beyond repair as they headed to the tomb that morning. Then, to add insult to injury, when they arrived at the tomb, the body of their beloved Jesus was gone. Verse 4 tells us how they responded. It says that they were perplexed. They were perplexed or confused. They couldn't imagine why his body was gone or who would have taken him. Don't miss what Luke is highlighting for us here. Why did the women bring spices to the tomb? It's because they expected to find a dead body. When the stone was rolled away and the body was missing, did that trigger optimism in them that Jesus might have been raised, that he might be alive? No, it didn't. Resurrection as a possibility, it it wasn't even on their radar. It wasn't on their radar until the radiant angel suddenly appeared to them and said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? The women still thought Jesus was dead. But the angels, they famously said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Just soak in that truth for just a moment. Why was Jesus' tomb empty? Why is it still empty? It's because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This was the first ever proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. And that shocking and glorious news, it had to be shared with others, others, which is exactly what we see in verses 9 through 12. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen clothes, so he went away amazed at what had happened. The scene for us is the women joyfully running as quickly as they could to tell the apostles the good news. And I want you to keep two things in mind about this conversation. First, Jesus appeared to these women on the way to share this news with the apostles. So not only did the the women tell them about the he is risen message of the angels, they also told the apostles that they had all seen Jesus personally, that they had even physically touched his nail-pierced feet when they fell down and worshiped him. You can read that in Matthew 27. Second, these are women that the apostles knew well. They knew that these were honest, honorable women who loved Jesus and the truth. Yet despite the women's united testimony, despite their proven reliability, the apostles still didn't believe them. In fact, they wrote it off as nonsense. 
It says it sounded like crazy talk to them. Luke's gospel highlights more than any of the others that no one expected Jesus' tomb to be empty. No one expected Jesus' tomb to be empty. Pilate didn't. The Roman soldiers didn't. The Jewish leaders who wanted the tomb to be guarded didn't. Even Jesus' most intimate disciples and closest followers, they didn't expect the tomb to be empty. This section in Luke, it, it, leads, it leads to a few of the many lines of evidence that proves the historical accuracy of the Gospels. For example, if the disciples had stolen Jesus' body or made up the resurrection story, it makes absolutely no sense why they would claim that Jesus appeared first to women or that the key leaders of the movement didn't even believe the news when they first heard it. The reason you would never claim that Jesus appeared first to women is that in that time period, women were often viewed as inferior to men. In fact, their testimony it wasn't even accepted in court. That's how low women, women's opinions were held. Similarly, it's not a good strategy to try and build a religious movement by presenting its leaders as cowards who are spiritually dense and unbelieving. All the Gospels, though, they're united in these descriptions because the writers, they weren't focused on recording you know, what would be good for marketing or PR. They're focused on recording what was true. What actually happened? Additionally, the disciples' outright initial denial of the resurrection proves that they needed irrefutable evidence before they would believe it. They weren't inclined to believing that Jesus rose from the dead. This is one of the strongest proofs for the resurrection. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but Jesus' first disciples, they didn't need faith the same way that you and I need faith in the resurrection. Now, they saw Jesus die and as we'll study in the next couple of weeks, they also saw Jesus risen from the grave. They were in a position to know, a unique position to know, if Jesus rose or not. And each one of these men who were initially scared and unbelieving, they were willing to face persecution and death for the rest of their lives, telling the known world that Jesus was God and that he rose from the dead. As many preachers have asked before, would you die for something that you knew was a lie. Many people have died for lies inadvertently, but would you die for something that you knew was a hoax? Human nature makes that unthinkable. We wouldn't die for something we knew was a lie. I like the way Charles Colson puts this. He worked for President Nixon and was arrested during the Watergate scandal, and he later became a Christian in prison. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. This also reminds me of a kind of a similar thing that I saw recently. A, a friend sent me a video, and it was trying to make the same point, but it, it was using satire. And in the video, you have a bunch of white guys dressed up and pretending to be Jews, and one of them's pretending to be Peter, and he gets the other disciples together, and he says, okay, guys, I've got bad news. Jesus died. Everyone groans, and he says, but wait, I've got an idea. 
let's go steal the body. And the disciples are like, okay, okay, okay. And then we'll say Jesus rose from the dead. And they're like, all right, okay, then what? And then everyone will hate us, will be persecuted and brutally murdered. And all the disciples are like, yes! And they start pounding, pounding each other, like chest bumps. They're just pumped. And I showed this to my kids and they thought it was the funniest thing ever. We just laughed so hard. And obviously that is outrageous. It's over the top satire, but it does highlight that there's not a good explanation for the historical facts around the empty tomb unless Jesus really did rise from the dead. So the breaking news of Luke 24, 1 through 12, is the shocking empty tomb that no one, including Jesus' most intimate disciples, were anticipating. This brings us to our second main point, the significance of the empty tomb. Why is the resurrection of Jesus such a big deal? Why is it central to everything about Christianity? Well, there are countless reasons why the empty tomb is significant, but let me just give you two big ones. First, it proves that Jesus' sacrifice for sin was acceptable. It proves Jesus' sacrifice for your sin and my sin was acceptable. All of us know that we haven't lived the way we should, and the Bible calls this sin. We all, we all have a conscience that proves to us that we are sinners we all have felt guilty about the way that we've lived at times. And the Bible is clear that sin is destructive. It destroys loving relationships between people. It destroys our soul. It poisons our own soul. And it also destroys any possibility of a relationship with God. It separates us from God. The reason for this is that God is perfectly just. And he's responsible to punish all the undeniable evil in this world. Now, if Jesus would act on that right now, if God would immediately punish all evil, then all of us would be wiped out. All of us would be in big trouble. We would not be heading to heaven. Now that, that surprises most people. And the reason is that we measure our goodness externally compared to other selfish, self-absorbed human beings. And we can all find other people, at least externally, that we feel better than, than our, and feel better than, than them. But the problem with this is that the standard for heaven is not how do, we, how do we compare to other imperfect sinners, but how do we compare to God's perfect righteousness? One of my brothers, when he was younger, he played hockey, and he was really good for his age. But I, I remember at one of my, my brother's games thinking to myself, what would happen if my 10-year-old brother got taken out of his game and then just dropped into an NHL game? Would he look like a good player then? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> in fact, it, it, success would be just making it off the ice alive. He'd be lucky, lucky not to get killed. And that's because the NHL is a totally different level than peewee hockey. It's literally another league. And the same is true when we begin to measure our goodness by Jesus Christ. The more I've studied and come to know Jesus personally, the more I see that I'm nothing like him naturally. Now, he, he is so righteous so, so perfect in his integrity, so loving and compassionate, and yet also so bold, so strong to challenge evil, willing to lay down his life to die for his enemies. If I'm going to be judged by that standard, then I have no hope. I have no shot. And that's even more clear when you realize God isn't just going to judge our external behavior. He's going to judge our inner world as well. He's going to judge our hearts. Imagine for a moment how you would feel if you knew that everyone within 100 feet of you 
was 100% aware of everything going on in your mind and in your soul right now. So everyone in this room, they know everything that's going on, everything you're thinking about, the conversations in your mind. And I could look out there and see who of you are like, man, when is this message? <laughs> When's this going to be over? You know, everyone just knows everything going on within you. Would you feel comfortable being here? No. None of you would. We'd probably all find the most deserted place that we could, as far away from human beings as possible. And the reason is because if people could see inside of you, they would see how proud you are and selfish you are and self-absorbed I am and petty we are. What you have to understand, though, is that God is 100% aware of your inner world 100% of the time for 100% of your life. And when we stand before him, it will be 100% clear to each and every one of us that what we deserve is eternal punishment in hell, not eternity in heaven. Hell would be the fate of each and every one of us if Jesus Christ had, had not stepped out of heaven into the world that he created. Jesus Christ is God. He's the second member of the Trinity, and he came to earth with a clear mission. That mission was to live a perfect life that none of us could ever live. And if you wanted to die for someone else's sin, even if you tried, you couldn't save anyone else because you have your own sin that you need to pay for. So you couldn't save anyone else even if you desired to. But Jesus never sinned. And so he was uniquely qualified in all the history of the world to make himself a sacrifice for others. Jesus came to live a perfect life that none of us could ever live, and then he came to die a sacrificial death in our place on the cross to satisfy the justice of God by voluntarily taking the punishment we deserve. Jesus came to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven and brought into a relationship with God. No one gets into heaven by being good. No one gets into heaven by being religious or by their own sacrifice and effort. It's only when people repent and admit that they're sinners. It's only as people admit the sinfulness of their heart before God that they can turn and then put their faith completely into the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus made for them on the cross. That is how people are saved. That is good news, isn't it? That Jesus died for your sins. Amen. That's good news. But what many Christians fail to realize is that that is only half of the good news. That's only 50% of the gospel. And let me explain why. Is there anything inherently supernatural or special about dying on the cross? No, there's not. The Romans, they crucified countless enemies during their reign, and none of those deaths had any saving power. So why should we think that Jesus' death was any different? For example, Imagine I told you I was going to save your soul by stepping out in front of traffic and getting run over by a bus. What would you think about me? <laughs> You'd think I'm crazy, right? You, you wouldn't think that I'm heroic. And this is why the resurrection is so invaluable. The resurrection, it didn't pay for a single one of your sins. The resurrection didn't pay for any of your sins at all, but it was the ultimate proof that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the ultimate proof of Jesus' identity, and it's the ultimate proof that, that Jesus' sacrifice for your sins was necessary and that it was acceptable to God. The cross was the payment for our sins, and the resurrection in many ways is like the receipt. It's proof that Jesus' sacrifice can save us from our sins. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith 
is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Remember, the resurrection didn't pay for any sins. So what Paul is saying is if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he isn't who he says he is. He's not God, and therefore his death can't help you out at all. People who believed in Christ who died, they're just dead. They haven't been saved. There's no hope for them. But if you flip it, if you state it positively, if Christ has been raised, then it proves that Christ is who he claimed. He is God. And then your faith in him is infinitely valuable because he paid for your sin. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, if we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. The resurrection of Christ is the pivotal fact of Christianity. If it isn't true, our faith is worthless. Our own Bible tells us it's a complete waste of time. What we're doing here this morning, it is a waste of time. We shouldn't be here if Christ wasn't actually raised from the dead. If he didn't really die on the cross, literally die for our sins, and then literally bodily rise from the dead. This is all a joke. And yet, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it proves that Jesus was who he says he was. It proves that Jesus was right when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to God because he is the only way our sin against God can be forgiven. And if Jesus is God, and if he died on the cross for your sins, then he's worthy of you to trust your life, or he's worthy of your trust and worship for the rest of your life. He's worthy of our love. Tim Keller puts it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not on whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The empty tomb then is significant because it proves Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was acceptable. Similarly, it is significant because it proves death is not the end. Jesus' resurrection was the first of its kind in human history. Yes, it's true the Bible records a few instances of miracles where someone was raised from the dead, like Jesus' friend Lazarus. But in those rare cases, those individuals, they were still mortal. All of them eventually died. Jesus' resurrected body, though, is immortal. And it can never die again. And it is a preview of the bodily resurrection of all of his believers or all who believe in him when he returns. Heaven is not going to be a a disembodied existence for Christians. It's not going to be this weird spiritual state where your soul is somehow connected to God, independent of of a body. No, when Jesus raises uh, his followers from the dead, when Jesus returns, He says that he's going to give us a physical body to enjoy a new heavens and a new earth without any sin. That's where we're going to spend eternity with our Savior. It's going to be in a tangible, real world, even more real as what we are experiencing right now. I'm so thankful that that this life is not all that there is. And the older I get, the more thankful I am for that. On the very best days, this world can never truly satisfy us. And even when things are going well, even when th- circumstances are the way we want, we, we know we can't keep them that way. 
In the back of our minds, we know that, that things are going to things are going to change. All of this can be lost so easily. And if you don't know Christ, then this life is as good as it's ever going to get for you. You don't have any ultimate hope beyond this world. And every day that you live, it just takes you that much closer to death where you're going to lose it all. If you know Christ, though, you don't have to fear death. And that's because the source of our hope is infinitely greater than this short and sin-infected life. Hebrews 2 says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Christ's resurrection can free believers from the fear of death. I was aware of this freedom in a a fresh way recently because a, a few months ago, I discovered a a lump on my leg. It was inside my leg, and it was when I was sick, and so I thought maybe it was just a swollen lymph node. But when I went to the doctor and he checked it out, he said, it is not a swollen lymph node. He was sure it wasn't that, but he wasn't sure what it was. There's only a few possibilities, and one of those possibilities was cancer. And so he told me to line up a few tests, and the first one was inconclusive, and so he told me to get an MRI. But for a number of reasons, it was harder to schedule that than I anticipated. There were a number of hoops to jump through, so it took quite a while. And so I didn't get to have the MRI until just this past Tuesday. So for over a month now, uh, things have been a little bit surreal because whenever I think about that lump, it reminds me there's a very real possibility that I have cancer growing in my body right now. As I look back on the past month, though, especially this Tuesday when I got the MRI, by God's grace, I think I've had a peace that goes past understanding. It just hasn't bothered me. It hasn't affected my, my day-to-day life at all. And I think one of the biggest reasons for that is that even though I love my life, I know that if I get, if I get cancer, God's going to be with me every step of the way. God still loves me. God will work that for good. And I know that even if I died, if cancer killed me, that, you know, the worst outcome from this world's perspective, to die and be with Christ is going to be far better than anything that I can ever hope to experience in this life. Now, if you're wondering, I did get the results back on Friday, but I'm sure most of you aren't interested, so just ask me afterwards if you'd like to know. Just kidding. (laughs) I won't do that to you. I won't leave you in suspense. Uh, Thankfully, it's not cancer. So I tore a muscle really, really badly. And uh, so it's not, not serious at, at all. So I'm, again, very, very thankful for that. But after I got off the phone with my doctor on Friday, I had a few thoughts right afterwards. The first thought is I realized I could still have cancer growing in my body right now and not be aware of it. And so could all of you. I also thought to myself, how ironic would it be on the day that I find out that you know, I, don't, I don't have cancer, at least in that lump, I could still get killed on the way home from work. I could get into an accident and die. And so while I'm thankful that the lump wasn't cancerous, I know that that's no guarantee that I'm going to live out the average life expectancy. That's no guarantee at all. The second thing that I've been thinking about is that it's really not very impressive to not be anxious about maybe having cancer. In many ways, we're all in that boat. We might have cancer. But in the past year or so, a few of our church family have faced cancer and other life-threatening health issues. And they've been a great example to us of relying on God through it, of showing the power of God and the grace of God to take us through anything that we face 
in life. Throughout history, believers have found peace and power and deep joy through the pain, heartbreak, persecution, and even death in this life. And that's because of their hope in the resurrection. That's because of their confidence in the resurrection because it proves that this life is not the end. This truth, it totally changes the, the equation for how we should process life. And when, when you think about that 16-year-old girl, Ashley, from Carlisle, from what I understand, she came from a Christian family. If her believers, or if her parents were believers, if she was a believer, then her parents, even though they'll never get to hug her again in this life, they will get to hug her again. They will get to see her. There's a hope for them. There's a, a different type of grief that we have as believers. If the Gospels are true, then the very best experiences in life for Christians, all of them are on the other side of eternity. Because in eternity, not only will we, will we be able to be reunited with other believers, we'll be able to hug our Savior. He has a physical body. And we'll be able to see the wounds in his hands and his feet. And we'll be able to worship him and spend eternity in the place that our soul was created for. Now, I want to quickly clarify one big misconception that can creep in at this point. While the Bible is clear that following Christ is going to be difficult, while it involves surrendering your life to him, I think the way that, that sometimes the, the gospel is communicated, it almost makes it sound like a bet. It, it can almost sound like, yes, life is going to be tough following Christ. It would be, probably be way better if you just lived however you wanted to. But because heaven, heaven and hell are real, you better, you better follow Christ. You know, that's just a better bet. Eternity is long enough to make it up for you, you know, what you miss out on this life. The Bible never presents following Christ that way. You know, it is going to be difficult to, following, to follow Christ, but Jesus promised that following him is the only place to find real satisfaction on this side of eternity. He says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. He said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will find it. This is what convinced me. I, I wanted to follow Christ. I got to a point where I realized, no, this isn't just the best thing in eternity. There's nothing better that I could give my life to here and now. Trusting in and following Christ isn't just better for you in the life to come. It's the best thing for the rest of your life in this world as well. So what should we do with these great truths about the resurrection? Two things to close. First, if you're not a Christian here, if you don't know the Lord, I would encourage you to run after the truth. None of the disciples believed that the women, uh, when they told them that Jesus rose from the dead, they rejected that, including Peter. And yet Peter did run to the tomb to examine the evidence for himself. He didn't believe them, but he wanted to go check it out. He, wa he wanted to go explore, and he was amazed when he found the tomb empty. I don't know about you, but I am very encouraged that Jesus took unbelieving and skeptical men and made them the pillars of his church. He turned the world upside down with those men. I can understand if you're not convinced yet that Jesus rose from the dead. Like I, I can appreciate that. We, we've only scratched the surface in terms of the evidence for the resurrection. But what doesn't make sense to me is how people can hear Jesus' claims to have conquered death and not try and figure out if it's true. Many of the world's most respected historians have become convinced that the resurrection of Christ is the most reliable fact of ancient history. And I don't think that's exa an exaggeration. There is so much compelling evidence that that actually 
took place. Even those historians who are non-Christians are forced to admit that Jesus was a real man, that he was publicly crucified, that he was buried in a rich man's tomb, that his tomb was found empty three days later, and that his disciples believed that he appeared to them after his death. Even non-Christian historians, they concede that. There's compelling evidence for anyone who runs after the truth. But what I've learned is that the real challenge is not ultimately an intellectual one. Some people have genuine intellectual questions, but there are real answers for those questions. The question isn't ultimately an intellectual one, but it's one of the heart. Many people, they don't want to seriously investigate the claims of Christ because they don't want to submit their lives to Jesus as their Savior and Lord. If you aren't sure if, if Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, if you're not a Christian or for those of you who are kids, you've grown up in the church, you've heard your whole life that Jesus rose from the dead, but you've wondered, is that actually true or is that just what my family believes? Is that just what, what my parents have taught me? Then I would encourage you, figure it out. Look into the evidence. It, it, it is such a stupendous claim it is such an incredible claim. It needs to have incredible evidence. I'd also encourage you to, to keep in mind that to, to just try and stay neutral about whether Jesus rose or not. It's to functionally reject Christ because it's to reject that you need a savior. So if you're not sure Christ rose from the dead, then run after the truth. And I would recommend doing that in a few ways. First, Read through the Gospel of Luke to see who Jesus was and to hear what he taught directly from him, to hear what, what Jesus taught himself. Second, I'd encourage you to read a book like More Than a Carpenter. So this book is by a man who had a very difficult childhood, bad experiences with church. So he set out to, to write a book disproving the resurrection. He met some Christians, and they just said, hey, if you disprove the resurrection, you shouldn't be a Christian. But if it's true then you need to become a Christ follower like us. And so he set out to write a book to disprove Christianity, and eventually he became convinced that the resurrection actually took place, and then eventually he gave his life to Christ. He's written a, a huge book on all the, the evidence he's found, but this is the Cliff Notes version. This is the easily accept, accessible, kind of simple explanation of why you can be confident that Christ rose from the dead. So if you're not a Christian or you're a Christian and you don't know how you'd answer the question, why do you think Jesus rose from the dead? Then I'd, I'd encourage you to get that book and to read it. We pass it out for free. We have some out, uh, out in the atrium. So grab one of those uh, as, you, as you leave and read it. Third, I'd also encourage you to come to church for the next month or so. And the reason why is I'd encourage you to get to know some people who actually love Jesus and try and figure out, can he save people's lives? Can he change people's lives and satisfy people's lives the way that he claims? Second, for all of you who do know the Lord, I would encourage you to rejoice in the risen Christ. Rejoice in the risen Christ. We do not serve a dead God. Amen. A dead God is pathetic. We have a God who conquered death from within death. Jesus in Revelation, after his resurrection, he said, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but behold, now I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Amen. The risen Christ is the one who gave you your physical life. The risen Christ is the source of love, joy, peace, and fulfillment in this life. The risen Christ gives your life objective purpose, and it gives all of the smallest decisions of your life even meaning 
insignificance. And the risen Christ gives us eternal hope and eternal life that our souls were made for and long for. We should rejoice over the glorious truth of the resurrection in our personal times with the Lord. We should talk about that with our families. We should share that, that hope of the resurrection with others who don't yet know Christ. But I would encourage you, don't forget that each Sunday is intended to be a celebration of the rec- resurrection. For thousands of years, God commanded his people to set aside the last day of the week to rest and to worship. And that's what the Jews did for all of the Old Testament. But that all changed on the day that Christ's tomb was found empty. Since then, God's people have gathered on Sunday, on the first day of the week, or the Lord's Day. And the reason for that shift is to commemorate and celebrate the erection of Christ together each week until he returns. Don't wait until next Easter to meditate on the resurrection, but recognize its significance and celebrate the empty tomb every single day. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're the living one. We thank you that you're risen. We thank you that you conquered death. We thank you that you are the reigning Savior and you rule over this universe. Lord God, I pray again that we'd be a church that sees that that you did rise from the dead and that our lives would reflect the fact that you're worthy of all that we have. Lord, I pray that, that you would just refresh us in the living hope of the gospel, the living hope that your resurrection brings. And God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray they they wouldn't try and dismiss these claims. They wouldn't try and keep you at at arm's length. But I pray that they would really address the question. They would really, really look in and seek the truth. Did you rise from the dead? Are you God? Are you worthy of their whole lives? Lord, we pray for the gospel preaching churches all around the city, that many, Lord, would hear the truth and turn to you today and begin to follow you. Thank you so much for this time together. And again, we just trust you to to apply your word to each and every one here. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. We're gonna...